Hello, thanks for joining us here at Animal Cafe, the place to meet with friends, bring your dogs, and have a great conversation with our guests. On Monday at animalcafe.co, you'll find a new interview with someone working to better the lives of animals. Then on Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, we meet in the chat room to go beyond the interview and get answers to your questions. I'm your host, Mary Haight. With me are fellow hosts Eric Goblebecker, Dr. Lori Houston, and Edie Girolam, bloggers all. Check our website, animalcafe.co, for guest and host profiles. We hope to see you here every Wednesday. So sit back, get comfortable, and enjoy the show. This is Dr. Lori Houston, and we're here today with Jackie Redford of Comfy Paws. You can find her at comfypaws.net. That's C-O-M-F-Y-P-A-W-S dot net. Jackie's been a veterinary technician since 1979, and she's been breeding Rhodesian Ridgeback since 1980. She's here today to talk to us about what makes a good breeder and what separates them from the rest of the crop, so to speak. Hello, Jackie. How are you today? Hi, very well, thank you. And how are you? I'm just fine, thanks. Uh, why don't we start at the beginning and start out with how how you would define the term good breeder. What do you think of as a, a good breeder, Jackie? Um, I think probably the first thing that um, comes to my mind is that the breeder actually has a real love for the breed that they own and that they have concern for the health of the overall population of the breed or the direction that the breed is going in and um, really seeks to maintain whatever their current form and function is, you know, based on what they're originally intended to do. So it, it kind of comes down to um, really maintaining the breed in its uh, purity and in, it, in its good health. That's the first thing. And then the second, then the rest of it is. Um, there's so much involved in this, but if, if you get a breeder that really loves their breed and, is, and cares about their future, then those are the people that are, they breed not very frequently. They take extraordinarily good care of their dogs. Every genetic disease that is known to occur in that dog that has a test available is done, Every each one of those tests is done to make sure that the breeding stock is free of those diseases, and although that's not going to guarantee that you're going to have puppies free of any genetic diseases, it does really reduce the risk of that happening, and um, those breeders also, I kind of think of it as putting your money where your mouth is. If you think you've got really good stock, those dogs are shown, and um, I like to see a title at the front of the name and at the back of the name. So if you've got a herding breed, I'd like to see a champion at the beginning and herding titles at the back or coursing or whatever it is that dog's job has been. I'd like to see the, the title at the end of the name that tells you that this dog is able to do in kind of a false way but still able to do some of the functions for which it was originally bred. Okay, well, that sounds like a, a pretty complicated process. Um, so that means that there's a lot more to breeding than just throwing a male and a female dog together and letting them do their thing. Can you kind of, oh yeah, <laughs> can you kind of walk us through the the process that you go through when you decide 
what mating pairs that you want to use. You've already mentioned the genetic testing, that the dog should be, t uh, should be tested for everything that there is uh, a test for within that breed. And right. so that obviously is a given. That's a, I think that that's a huge one. And um, as far as the genetic testing goes, um, it's not just important for the dogs that we're breeding. And I'll give you an example. Um, I could have a top-winning show dog who's from, let's say, a litter of 10. And that dog has passed all of his genetic screening with flying colors. But the other nine dogs in the litter are just plastic. So now we know that though this dog may be, his phenotype is that he is free of dysplasia, his genotype is he's just plastic, and he's going to produce it. Maybe we should define some of those terms a little bit, Jackie. Oh, um, okay. Can you kind of go into what genotype and phenotype is? Phenotype is a physical appearance, correct? Yeah, the, the phenotype is what that dog is, what we see in just that one dog. The genotype is what the genes are in the family. And these genetic diseases, they are genetic, and they're carried in the genes. And some of them are polygenic, where they require a series of gene combinations to produce it, and some of them are autosomal, which means it just means one. But um, if you've got dogs in a litter that are affected by a particular disease, and I use hip dysplasia as an example, then even the dogs in that litter who are unaffected probably are caring for it, and that means that they can go ahead and produce it. And even though his genotype looks good, so when you are looking at a pedigree and you see 10 generations back where these dogs, all the dogs that appear on the pedigree are OFA certified with good hips. I mean, that looks nice, but we don't know which ones in there have affected brothers or sisters or who have produced affected offspring. So as a breeder, it's your responsibility to, you have to know that pedigree and you have to know who's got what and where. And um, what a lot of breeders will do, and this is what I would do, was, you know, when there's a litter of puppies, I keep my, whatever dogs I'm keeping, and then I set up, a, like, um, health clinic at a local veterinary hospital and invite everybody who bought a dog from me to come bring your dog. We're going to do screening today, and we're going to do hips, elbows, eyes, and heart. And, um, get all those dogs done. And that way, I had that data, so I knew exactly where I stood on the genes that I was dealing with. Not just what the rating was on the particular dog I was looking to breed. Uh, you know, Jackie, that is a wonderful idea. And I have to say, in over 20 years in veterinary practice, I've never had a breeder approach me to do something like that in my practice. And I wish a lot, I wish more of them would. I think that's a terrific idea. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's vitally important because we have, what well, we do have to understand the depth of our pedigree. We also have to know the breadth of it. And um, most of the people that I dealt with, with buying the dog and stuff, they were perfectly amenable to doing this. When, um, when the, when I was selling the puppies, I explained it, I explained my purpose, and, um, if there was an, a financial issue for the buyer, at the time, 
when I wanted all this screening done because it can be expensive. And uh, then I would just pay for it because it was my data. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted that information. It was so important for me to have that before I could move on. So I, and I do, I do think that there are some breeders that, that do that. I've known of a few in my area that have done that. And most of the veterinarians, if you approach them and say, you know, I can guarantee I'm going to have 10 dogs here to have and tell them what test you want done, they'll give you a group rate. So oh, I'm sure. Nice yeah, I, I yeah. know we would, sure. Yeah, so that was real nice too. They did give us a financial break on it. So, but that's just like one part of the, the breeding aspect. I think that that's a really important part. But then the other thing is when you're, when you're going to breed your dog, you have to know what is good confirmation and what's not, what's good breed type, what's a sound temperament, and you have to know what, and you have to be honest when you assess your own dog and where her faults or, um, assets lie. And then when you go looking for the stud dog, I would call that shopping. <laughs> okay. <laughs> go, stud, go stud dog shopping. <laughs> and now you have to find a dog that matches your female, um, you know, pretty much in physical characteristics. You don't want to double up on the same fault. So if my female needs a little bit better layback in the shoulder, I'm going to look really seek out a dog that's got a very correct front structure. And but I'm not. I don't want a dog with a good front structure who has maybe a poor rear or ugly head, or bad temperament. So it really is trying to find the best of the best to breed to, and then you just kind of hope for the best after that. And it's, uh, some people do line breeding, and some, I always get a sort of mating where you take like, they're, they're very much alike, but they're not closely related. Okay. And it takes a little bit longer to set type, but you just have you have a lower inbreeding coefficient, and um, generally, uh, really well balanced dog. Let's talk a little bit about line breeding because there's a lot of controversy about that, and I think probably a lot of misconceptions. You know, I, I speak to a, a lot of people who have dogs where you know a mother has been bred to a son or something like that, and. A lot of times they're accidental matings, which is unfortunate. But these people come in and they're afraid their dogs are going to be born with two heads or yeah. something like that. Or five legs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, a mother, father, or a mother, son, or father, daughter, daughter breeding is actually an inbreeding. And um, there are incidences where that would be called for, but very rarely. And um, there are other, t most people do line breeding. And the formula for the line breeding is the sire of the sire is the grandsire on the damn side. And um, I've done line breeding. I think where line breeding gets into trouble is when you do it for five to ten generations. Each time is another line breeding. That's when you're really um, honing down and you're losing your gene pool and your dogs are becoming more and more interrelated and so on the inbreeding coefficient I really like everything under 10% and as you get higher in the inbreeding coefficient 
you, you know, you start seeing loss of substance initially, and then you'll start seeing, um, most, mostly, uh, immune problems, thyroid issues, and that kind of stuff. If you get bred into clothes. So you really start, uh, getting into health problems if you start line breeding too many generations. Yeah. Yeah, you, and it, and it starts off kind of slow, and you might see maybe some males that look a little feminine. They don't have the, the substance and the, and they don't look robust. And then maybe this dog's gonna have a, a food allergy, or chronic ear issues. And you know, that's the start where you, that's where you start knowing, well, we're kind of pushing this a little bit because we're getting into the endocrine system now. And we're affecting it with, because we're too close to breath. And, um, you know, gosh, in, in Europe, they have such a totally different approach to all this. They actually have rules in their kennel book of how closely you can breathe. Do they? I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, real interesting. Um, their, their approach is to see, and I imagine that comes down to, because that's how they do their horse breeding in Europe as well. But um, that's how they do it with dogs over there. And in Sweden, or I think it's in Sweden, or Denmark, maybe. Um, you can't breed anything closer than, like, second cousin. Interesting. Yeah, which is really pretty safe. Second cousin. If you do it once, not if you keep doing it generation after generation. But some of that stuff you have to do, you know, if you're going to set type, or if you're trying to eliminate a particular um, trait, then you might breed a little close to lock something in, and then you have to go back out. So there's a place for it to exist and, and there's a time for it to, to end and bring in new blood. Yeah, there's a time and a purpose for it. But, um, you know, it's like any of, any of those other things, too much a good thing is not so good. And you can, you can kind of get yourself right into a corner. Is there any talk of creating rules like that here in the United States that you're aware of? Yeah. No, it'll never happen here because um, people are, you know, uh, Americans are very independent people. And they're going to say, don't tell me what to do with my job. <laughs> this falls to education. And, you know, we've, we've had so many things at our disposal. With it, whatever breed we have, we each have a nationwide parent club. They, we have mentor programs. We've got OFA that is just a fountain of information. They now have the CHIP program within, within OFA. And also with the Internet, you know, we've got all this information at our fingertips. Can you explain to our listeners what the OFA is and what the CHIP program is? Yeah. yeah, OFA is the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals. And they began back in the 60s primarily with just x-rays for hip dysplasia. And um, they set up the criteria and what are the symptoms and what they look like radiographically so that they could diagnose hip dysplasia. And they keep everything on file. So when you submit your x-rays at two years of age, is when the dogs are uh, certified, then there's a, a panel of board-certified veterinary radiologists that read that x those x-rays. So if two of the three say they're good hips, then you, you get a good a good rating. And over the years, OFA has expanded from hips, and then they went to elbows, and, um, oh my gosh, now they're, 
they keep all of the, almost all of the records. So if you've got thyroid, um, they do, you know, thyroid from MSU, Michigan State University, where most of us do, you know, our thyroid stuff. And then those results go straight to OFA. And if you have your dog's eyes examined by SURF, that, those results go to OFA. So everything is like in a nice little, little pile, all that stuff, and it's all, you know, each dog has their own little number, so all those health results are, are attached to that dog's number. So cardiac tests, bear testing, everything that's done can go right in there. And then the chip program was something that they began, and that must have been like 10 years ago, or maybe longer than that. Here in California, we had a, an organization, it was GDC, was the initials. And that was an open database. And um, they had financial troubles and they went under. So OSA took that database. And that database is now part of the CHIC program. And so what the CHIC program does, for each breed, they've got a list of genetic diseases. And every dog that passes those diseases gets a CHIC number. And... Um, so it could be, well, in Ridgeback, it's hips, elbows, cardiac, thyroid, and eye. Those are the five required ones. And you can also throw in there, um, I think they have the gene for DM that been identified. They can put that in there. Anything that they pass, you can put in there. And then those dogs are termed health champion. It's kind of like a way to get people to really, really do a lot of testing on their dogs. And the criteria was set up, OFA and the AKP Health Foundation worked together with the parent clubs to establish what the criteria was for each breed. So it's really pretty extensive, pretty good information. And it sounds like it's excellent information when you're trying to select a dog as a prospective mate for one of your dogs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very important. You know, there's a whole lot of... Things like this that go on in the dog world that um, most pet owners know nothing about. And some, so many of these advances that have been done in purebred dogs, the trickle-down effect of that to the general dog population has been wonderful because, this, you know, all of the studies and all the information gleaned from these databases help the diagnostics and treatments of the, of the pet population. Oh yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. Absolutely. So that's another, that's another real big benefit of doing it this way. Sure. Are there breeders out there that are the commercial puppy mill types that, that are actually making large sums of money off of breeding Jackie? Well, you know, I imagine that there are. Most people are like me. You have a house in the yard. You can only maintain so many dogs because we've got, you know, county and city city regulations and all that kind of stuff. I think if you live in an outlying area and you could have, you know, 90 dogs, you could probably make some money on it. If you're not doing the genetic screening and you're not showing, because that's what the expense is, only if you're not feeding them real good. But those are the things that are going to set an, an ethical breeder like yourself apart from the puppy mills and the other, the other profitable operations. Oh, yeah. Um, 
I, I'm sure that there are people that make money, but um, <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> it has to be <laughs> by sheer, it has to be by sheer volume. Because oh my gosh, you figure okay, you buy a puppy, you pay twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars for it. You if you show it yourself, your entries are twenty five bucks per show. So even if it's an extraordinarily nice dog and you finish it under ten shows, that's still quite an expense. Now you've got all the genetic screening, all your other veterinary care. You're feeding a good diet. Now you got to find the stud dog. That's another three or four thousand for your um, stud fee, and then you got to have a litter of eight to ten puppies, and that feed those for a while. <laughs> I mean, it is it, 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 it's an expensive. If you really do it, do it well, and those. To all your dogs receive optimum care, it's an expensive proposition. So you have to really love your dog. And, you know, and this is, uh, you know, we just had Westminster Kennel Club show on. Yeah, I decided it cost me, every time I went, it cost me three grand to make that trip from California to New York to take my dog, one dog. Um, I don't know what that would have cost if I hired a handler, if I did all those huge ads. These dogs that we see, people are spending six figures a year on those dogs. They're not making any money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess that's the, that's the point I'm trying to make. Is you know the people that are doing it right, doing the genetic testing, or choosing the the, the mating very carefully. They're actually trying to improve the breed as opposed to just producing a crop of puppies that they can sell. Exactly. Money. Yeah. And, you know, th- those kinds of people are, in my opinion, the type of people who deserve to be breeding dogs. They're the type of people who deserve to be promoting the breed. Yeah, I think so, too. But I don't think they're probably in a position to be making large no. sums of money off of doing it. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think that's probably unfortunate in a way that it, it works out that the not so reputable people like the puppy mills and so forth are the ones that are making money at it. Oh, yeah, they're making an incredible amount of money. Well, Jackie, you've been an incredible guest, and I know you still have a lot to share with us, so I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation in part two of our chat. Thank you so much for joining us, Jackie.